think I would like drinking water more if it had more flavor, but still no calories. <laughs> well, we got Mio that one time and you just never used it. Well, the thing about flavored water (laughs) is that there's not enough flavor. Like, I want soda, but I want soda to be water. That had a ton of flavor, though. I don't like Mio flavor, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very picky about the type of flavor I want and how much I want of it. And water just doesn't have any at all. You know? Plain water is the best. I agree that plain water is very good. I wouldn't say it's the best. It's the best. Certain circumstances, plain water is top tier. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Emma. And I'm Luke. And this week, we're on Chapter 3, Efren Vestrit. This is Chapter 3 of the Live Ship Chronicles. I guess I don't... Nope, Live Ship Traders. Live Ship tra- Traders. I'm <laughs> I don't know. I just kind of don't pay attention when you do this part, so I never... Uh, if you listen back to our early episodes, you actually did quite a few of them in the beginning. Yes, I did. But I don't remember now that we've gotten into a routine if you say the book name or not. <laughs> Sometimes. Not usually, I don't think. But sometimes. Okay. Well, this time I did. (laughs) (laughs) And the first line of this is, Efren Vestret is dying. Yes. So we uh, kind of do a 180 from Althea's hope that her father is going to get better and take over the ship again. And we have Ronica, her mother's perspective, and Efren's wife. And it's... Pretty much from, I think the whole chapter is from her perspective. Yes, it is. Yeah. Our f- first introduction to her, the matriarch of the Vestrit trading family, and he's dying. Yeah, it is official. There is no hope to be had, which people didn't for sure know um, going into this. And it seems as though it is just a recent discovery. Um, things seem to have been getting better at some point during his year at home but not anymore yeah and as a refresher althea and kyle and brashen have all been out on that uh, on the vivacia on the trading trip for about five months right now instead of a few weeks right it was originally i think only supposed to be a two-month journey something like that yeah. yeah and it's turned into a five so we are here with ronica vestrit as she is dealing with the reality that her husband is dying. And with this intro, we get that she is very angry, actually, about the death. Um, It's made pretty clear almost immediately that this anger stems from her trying to push away the deep sadness that will happen if she accepts this death and really grieves like she wants to. Um, So instead, she's putting up a strong front by being angry because that is the only way she can think of to not become hopeless. Yep, exactly. And a lot of her inner thoughts are basically about their situation and how could he do this to her right now? Right. There's a lot of 
blaming going on, it feels like. Uh, Veronica is... But again, a protection kind of thing. Right, definitely. But she is blaming kind of everything on her husband, whether or not that's right to do. And I, I don't know. I think this chapter has made me kind of really dislike her in a way that she doesn't seem to take responsibility for anything. I think you're doing her a disservice off the bat because you you literally touched on the fact of why she's angry. Yes. No, I'm not and I saying think that's literally like all of it. Like, no, I, I <laughs> I'm not saying her anger towards her husband and like blaming her husband for being sick is like, wow, she can't even take responsibility. Like, that's not it. I think this chapter as a whole, before we dig into it, oh, I just want to okay. say really brings to surface that it's not just this instance where she's like pushing away the right thing or trying to dig deeper into a feeling. Yeah. She just is surface level. It's never her fault. And I think, okay, well bring it up again. Yeah. And I think that it also made me think about how Ronica is very much who Althea will probably become if not, or would have become, if not for the growth that she goes through in this book, there is a lot of similarities between the two, in my opinion, from this chapter to last, um, where yes, Althea is kind of like wild and crazy, like her father and loves the sea. But I think I see a lot of her mother in her. That is probably part of the reason why they don't get along as well. (laughs) That's fair. So anyway, uh, as Ronica is, trying to get over the fact that her husband is dying, trying to put that thought aside. She goes to think about something else. In this case, it is being upset that their new servant, Rach, isn't very good at her job. Um, Rach is an indentured servant, so not someone they are paying. Yes, quote unquote, not a slave. And that yes. pops up a couple times because in Bingtown, slaves are illegal but quote unquote, they are indentured servants. Right. Which is not illegal. Yes. Because technically it's just, they're free people, but they are working off a debt. Right. Again, quote unquote, not slaves. And I think it's really important to talk through this part because of a part that follows soon after where Veronica Veronica kind of turns up her nose at the way the Bingtown traders have openly started basically being slave owners. But anyway, we're here now with Rach and she talks about how Rach shows a lot of potential and seems like a very smart, almost well-bred woman if she wouldn't have known any better. And she doesn't really feel like Rach deserves to become a slave, which is what would happen if she would return Rach to Devad, who she got Rach from. But also she thinks that Rach doesn't really do her job very well. She never really listens. She she is such a good master and Rach doesn't even appreciate it. So uh, some of the background on Rach is that we learn this much later, I think, but she and her husband and her son, well, specifically she and her husband fell into debt um, in Jamalia. So the three of them were kind of brought up, brought together and shipped off as slaves-ish. Her husband on one ship and she and her son on another. Her son died during that journey and with her despair, she was dropped off because of superstition in Bingtown where Devad kind of grabbed her and then has an indentured servant and then gave her to Ronica's 
and the Vestrids care. So that's a little bit of background, which kind of explains some of the things in this chapter. She is obviously going through her own intense grief and being uh, by losing her son and being separated by her husband. But in Ronica's eyes, she doesn't know that. She is just the relatively uncommunicative, unhelpful servant that she got from an old family friend that she doesn't really like. I think the first thing that she says about Rach is that she couldn't even feed her husband right because her husband had a little bit of soup in his beard, <laughs> Efren did. And so she's mad about that with finding fault in Rach because of that. And I think it's really important to talk about how there's a lot of language in here, specifically towards Rach, about how she doesn't deserve to be a slave and how, like, she shows so much potential. And if she would just take hold of her life, she could change things. And how Ronica really sees herself as this, like, benevolent master and how that is Ronica's way of kind of separating herself from being a bad owner of slaves and even just trying to pretend like she doesn't participate in the ownership of slaves. Um, never once is it mentioned when Rach will be able to even earn her way out of this, how long Ronica is thinking of keeping Rach around with the intention of not paying her to change to paying her because she's paid off a debt, quote unquote. It's not even clear if Ronica knows how much debt was owed. It just is this conversation about how, like, I'm such a good person. I don't beat her. And whenever she says no, I just give her a different task. And I'm disappointed in her. But really, she should be better or else she can expect to become a slave and hope that fate deals her a better hand than what I've given her. And that's on her. It's very passive and not very like, well, I have nothing to do with this. I'm just working with what I have. So uh, the reason I brought up Rach's history a bit was part of Ronica explaining, you know, what tasks she seems to be shirking and that sort of thing. It says, in fact, as the weeks passed, it seemed to Ronica that Rach had become more and more grudging in her duties. Yesterday, Ronica had asked her to take charge of Selden for the day, and the woman had looked stricken. Her grandson was only seven, but the woman seemed to have a strange aversion to him. She had shaken her head fiercely and mutely, her eyes lowered, until Ronica had ordered her off to the kitchen instead. Perhaps she was seeing how far she could push her new mistress before Ronica ordered her punished. Well, she'd find that Ronica Vestrit was not the kind of woman who ordered her servants beaten or their rations reduced. If Rach could not find it within herself to accept living comfortably in a well-appointed house with relatively light duties and a gentle mistress, well... Then she would have to go back to Devad and eventually take her place on the block and see what fate dealt her there, or dealt her next. That was all there was to it. A shame, for the woman had promise. And again, I brought up her son because I'm sure, you know, just reading that, it, Selden, taking care of Selden probably reminds her of her own son. Right, and that's really hard to do. I mean, it's already really bad that she's basically a slave <laughs> over not being able to pay a debt. That's not... Great. Nobody deserves to be a slave. I don't think slavery is right in any context. But not only is she adjusting to that new style of life, but she also has to deal with the grief of her dead son. And she doesn't even have a mistress, a kind mistress, who will 
ask about her past or try to get to know her or work with her. She just gives her tasks and gets frustrated when she doesn't do them. So very, very sad (laughs) character interaction. Yeah. And to be a little bit more kind to Ronica, I mean, obviously, yes, she's entitled and like, oh, I have a servant. I'll tell him to do tasks. But admittedly, in this chapter of her own volition, she kind of says she hasn't really looked at Bingtown or been outside since her husband has gotten sick again, which has been months now. Right. And during this time is when Rach was kind of given to her. So kind of just in her own grief as well. And it's just two women who have not learned anything about one another at all. Right. No, I don't. I think that's a little bit fair. I mean, she obviously is going through a lot right now, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm probably being too harsh on her. I just think these changes have been happening for a while. It hasn't just all of a sudden happened while she's been at home for the last five months. But anyway, with this talk of fate potentially changing, changing for Rach, it brings her thoughts to Devad. Devad, who we saw a little bit last chapter in from Paragon's point of view, um, who is trying to secretly sell Paragon to a non-trader family. Mm-hmm. But here, Ronica doesn't know about that. And we're talking about how Devad is a kind man. She sees him as a kind man, but she is a little disappointed in him because his family name is a little bit tarnished and that he is getting the closest out of all of the trader family to becoming a slave trader. He's not the only one, but he is the deepest in it, I guess. Yeah. And this is where we see the first capitalization of old trader. Uh, Cause there are old trader families, which are the original families that came over from Satrap Escipulus or something. I don't know. It's later in the chapter. I'll try to muddle through it then, <laughs> but That's the original traders. And then we have introduced later on the three ships, people and families that kind of took their lot and settled. And then there are the new traders that are coming that Satrap Cosgo is telling to buy up land and or giving them land and stuff like that. So the kind of three different factions and all under that is the quote unquote indentured servants. Yes. (laughs) So Devad is part of the capital O old traders or his family line is and so it is disappointing to see him kind of get close (laughs) yeah get close and emulate the new traders so she's thinking that and she had other more important things to think besides of rachel's sour temperament and davad's dabbling in semi-legal professions after all efron was dying the knowledge jabbed at her again it was like a splinter in the foot that one could not find and dig out that little knife of knowing stabbed into her at every step. Ephron was dying. Her big, bold husband, her dashing and handsome young sea captain, the strong father of her children, the mate of her body was suddenly this collapsed flesh that sweated and moaned and whimpered like a child. She kind of goes on to describe him when she met him, how he was, you know, really strong and strapping, and later on mentions that they had married for love and... That was fairly rare. Even now, it's fairly rare for that to happen. And she hardly sees that man anymore and who has, you know, who has gotten sick and is laying down in their bed in front of her. 
Right. He's no longer tanned from being out at sea all the time. He is almost the same color as the sheet linen that she has him tucked into. And his once shining bright black hair is now, when not greasy, dull. He just, he's also basically skin and flesh because he's lost his appetite with his sickness. Um, And so it's all she can do to just kind of keep him clean and comfortable. She talks about how they've been together for 36 years, which is a very long time. And that she's been dosing him against the pain. And that at this point, that's all there is left to do. Like there's no, they can't, they don't know what's wrong with him. They don't know how to fix it. So they just have to deal with it. Um, he, she's been dosing him with some honey poppy and milk, honey poppy mixture (laughs) and milk. And she's done it twice today already, which is a lot. And so she doesn't even think he's probably going to wake up today. And she just hopes that while he's asleep, that at least the pain is at bay and that's all she can give him. She also goes into speaking of all the plans that they had made and how those have kind of fallen by the wayside and thinks bitterly of those nights that they spent talking and planning, you know, after the daughters were wedded and settled down and uh, the ship is paid off, then Efron and Ronica can go off on their own vacations and trips and pleasure cruises around and he can take her wherever wherever you know she wants to go and he wants to show her and she just wants him to stay back for a year on the homestead all all to herself and all this kind of romantic planning you do as a couple who spends probably eight months of the year away from each other right and it is really sad to hear this old talk i mean he had wanted to take her to his favorite places and she wanted to show him all of her favorite places that she's been doing all the things she's been doing since he's been on a ship that he doesn't get to see. And he always says, Oh, there'll be time enough to have me stay landlocked for a year. Um, I'm going to take you traveling first. Like that was always the plan was that she would be on the boat and she would get to go places first. And now she got her wish of having him home for a year mm-hmm. and is kind of cursing the gods that it has been twisted this much. Yeah. Ronica bowed her face into her hands. She'd had her year of him at home. Woeful gods, but what a way to gain her wish. She'd had a fall of him coughing and fractious, feverish and red-eyed, lying in their bed all day and staring out the window at the sea whenever he was well enough to sit. He'd best be taking care of them, he'd growled whenever the sky showed a dark cloud, and Ronica had known that his thoughts were always with Althea and the Vivacia. He'd been so reluctant to turn the ship over to Kyle. He'd wanted it to give it to Brashen, an untried boy. It had taken Ronica weeks of arguing with him to make him see how that would look to the town. Kyle was his own son-in-law, and he had proved himself as captain on three other ships. If he'd passed him over to put Brashen in charge of the Vivacia, it would have been a slap in the face to his daughter's husband, to say nothing of his family. Even though the Havens were not Bingtown traders, they were an old family in Bingtown nonetheless. And the way the Vestret fortunes were faring lately, they could afford to offend no one. So last autumn, she'd persuaded him to entrust his precious Vivacia to Kyle and take a trip off, 
to strengthen his lungs again. So I want to talk a little bit about this because I think it's really important. Um, Last episode, I talked about how I was really mad at uh, Efren for not giving Brashen the ship after making him feel like he was going to get it. Um, So obviously... He would have got it if it wasn't for that meddling Ronica. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So obviously, like, he did intend to give Brashen the ship. I think that I'm still frustrated that he allowed Ronica to persuade him by using like their reputation as a reason or like what other people might think as a reason. It wasn't because Brashen wouldn't have been a good captain or there was a real reason that Brashen shouldn't other than, well, that doesn't look good. She does say he was an untried boy and he is 24 years old compared to Kyle, who's probably what mid thirties or so. Probably. But Early still, 30s, yeah, I, yeah, I just wanted to add that in. It's yeah, it's not just reputation, right? But he's an untried boy as well. <laughs> no, that's fair. I think, but I think, like obviously, between Ronica or Efren, I think Efren knows more what Brashen is capable of than Ronica does, and. I think nobody in town would have been surprised considering Brashen had earned it. And it seems as though, at least from what we heard from Brashen's perspective, he has really cleaned himself up and made a better reputation of himself. So like... Somewhat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's also from Brashen's point of view. We don't really know. But also I think it's ridiculous to be like, well, what would people think? Like, who cares what people think? It's not their business. <laughs> but Ronica did care. And so she made it so that Kyle had to be in charge. I think the town would care a lot more than you're kind of giving credit to. I, I think since even even on the own ship that, you know, he's been sailing for the past 10 years. Right. They don't really bring up his family. They don't bring up that past, his history. I think it's still kind of big gossip around town. So if he was given charge of a ship and not his family's own ship, that would create a big stir. I Okay. I don't want to make it seem like I'm trying to downplay that. Like, I don't think people would care at all. Like I'm sure people would care and people would talk as people are want to do. However, my point is more like, why does it matter what they're saying? They're not on the ship. They're not in charge. Like it doesn't affect them in any way. And like, I get it because like it's human nature to care about what people say. Like, obviously you're going to care. I just think it's ridiculous to be like, well, the town will have something to say about it. Like, who cares if it doesn't affect your sales? I think it will, though, because Ronica will have to deal with it. She's the one who's at home. It won't affect the ship, sure. No, it won't. It won't affect the people that, you know, they buy from in different ports. It won't affect the goods, the prices there, but it will affect every conversation that Ronica is a part of for the next, you know, years. I think that's that's why. Like she's the one who has to deal with the fallout of any of those decisions because Efren or Brashen or Althea are just kind of gone, you know, the whole year. Right. So I I see like I totally understand, like, and I totally agree. Yeah, Brashen would be awesome. But I coming from her point of view, like she has to deal with the fallout there. And she's the one dealing socially with all the other traders and families. That's fair, I guess. I like I get that point. I guess I just wish that she had more of a backbone and was like more of a person who could 
let things roll off her back to not care. Like she deeply cares about every little thing and what it means and what the, like what the outcome will be three steps from that. And which is like not a bad skill to have. And I think it's really good that she can like have that insight. I just wish that she like didn't make poor decisions just because it's easier for her because ultimately could be easier for the, uh, I mean, any, any, any kind of, bad attitude towards that family could affect her borrowing against creditors or like not paying back people. Maybe like, Hey, can I extend this a week? No, I don't think so. You might not bring in a lot of money. Brashen's untried, you know, like I want my payment now. Okay. Like things like that. I think because she details later that she's the only one who really looked at the books ever and Efren always kind of brushed her aside. Like, Oh no, I trust you. Which like, Great trust, but also you kind of want somebody well, to yeah, help that's, once in yeah. a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, I definitely have things to say about that when we get there. But yeah, I, I guess. I think it's just those small little favors that she's like, mm, if people think we're like not great decision makers, will they help us out with okay. small little favors to move our money around? You know what? That's fair. I think I accept that a little bit more. And that makes more sense to me. I don't know. I think I just personally get really defensive when I see people like living based off of like, I don't know, making decisions because of the invisible audience that is watching them. Like that's just not a good enough reason not to live your life to oh, me. True. Yeah. Um, but I guess in this case, like that invisible audience actually could potentially. They rely on the invisible yes. audience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, I guess I should be a little bit less harsh on this, but also I do want to talk about how Kyle has captained three other ships doesn't seem like it, that's for sure. Uh, no. Also, I'm wondering if he has captained three other ships. Why isn't he still captaining those? Like, was he a captain for another one that he stepped away to come to this one? Or did he captain three separate ships, like one trip each, and was so bad he couldn't come back? Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, that's the vibe I'm getting from what we've seen. <laughs> <laughs> Monica does say in her thoughts that the Havens are a very respectable family. And a very old family, not an old trader family, not one of the originals, but very respectable. So I'm sure they own trading ships of their own, obviously not live ships because that's reserved for old traders. But he comes from a family that obviously has some sort of wealth and that probably put him in a good place to capture or captain some of the family ships. And if everything is ran, how Kyle is brought up in his family. Right. Then probably everything ran smoothly, if not harshly on each of those ships. Right. I think I just don't see how someone who has already captained three ships doesn't then know how to store goods. I, you know, this is totally conjecture, but yes, (laughs) maybe the Havens are just, you know, single or different good you know, merchants or traders or they're, you know, he worked with different goods before because maybe he didn't have barrels of wine before, or maybe because it's a live ship, things might be stowed differently in a more like in a better way. Right. And he doesn't know that obviously because he didn't grow up around a live ship. I don't know. Just things like that kind of, it could be just different ships because live ships are, we're, we're totally like pounded into our heads that live ships are completely different. They're very unique in everything that they have. So I'm just kind of curious of if that's the reason. Mm. I guess I'm thinking they're different just because 
they're better at sailing, not like they're right. laid out differently. <laughs> yeah. Could I guess be. I don't know. Yeah. Not sure. Um, but you know, she kind of brushes past that. We now know that the reason, the reasoning behind, yes, um, Kyle's the, choice. Yes. Kyle's choice, the mess from last chapter. Um, it's all Ronica. And she goes back into talking about how she thought he would get better. That's why she had him stay. And he's only gotten worse. Well, he did start getting better. He stopped coughing for a while and his fatigue was incredibly high, but he did stop coughing. And then as winter moved on, he started moving less and less around. And then eventually in spring, he started coughing again. Just kind of stopped for a while and then progressed after that. Right. Well, it does say that he didn't get better. He just didn't get worse. (laughs) Right. But it does come to spring. Um, She had talked about how one of the things when they were young, they had talked about she had wanted him to see their wedding tree bloom. It seems like it's a cherry blossom tree. It, whatever this tree is in the spring, it has pink flowers that bud. And this year, even though it had been fine in the past several years with the blights that had been ailing different trees on their property this year, their marriage tree came to be affected. So instead of blooming these beautiful, fragrant flowers, the tree died. The flowers died before they could even bloom. And they tried not to talk about it. They're not very religious people, so they tried not to see it as an omen or as saws, like, sign something bad was going to happen. But they kind of knew at that point that he wasn't really getting better. Mm Mm-hmm. So while he wasn't even getting worse and right before that kind of happened, they did idle tasks, kind of spent some time together. And of course, they talked about Althea and disagreed over her as usual. (laughs) As they had been doing since she was born, apparently. (laughs) Efren had never been able to admit that he spoiled their youngest child. The blood plague had carried off their boys one by one back in the hellish disease year, Even now, close to 20 years later, Ronica felt the squeeze in her chest when she thought of it. Three sons, three bright little boys taken in less than a week. Kefria had barely come through it alive. Ronica had thought it would drive them both mad to see the tree of their family stripped of every male flower. Instead, Efren had suddenly turned his attention and hopes to the babe that had sheltered inside her womb. Attentive as he had never been during her other pregnancies, he had even tied up the ship for an extra two weeks to be sure of being home when the child was born. When the babe had been a girl, Ronica had expected Efron to be better, bitter. Instead, he had given all his attention to his young, young daughter as if somehow his will could make a man of her. He had encouraged her wildness and stubbornness until Ronica despaired of her. Efron had always denied it was anything other than high spirits. He refused her nothing, and when Althea one day demanded to go with him on his next voyage, Efren had even consented to that. It had been a short trip, and Ronica had met the ship at the docks, convinced that she would get back a girl who had had more than enough of rough living conditions on the ship. Instead, she'd seen a wild monkey up on the rigging, her black hair cut back to no more than a brush, barefoot and bare-armed. Ever since then, she had sailed with her father, and now she sailed without him. 
Althea hadn't even been born when she lost her brothers to the blood plague. Uh, Kefria had been, but barely survived as well. And as for the comments from last chapter, from Kyle, Efren, and according to Veronica here, he didn't replace Althea at all with the three sons, just encouraged her to do anything that she wanted, basically. Right. And spoiled her. I do also want to point out that this idea that he was kind of replacing his sons with Althea is also coming from Ronica. Ronica is saying that she's assuming that he has did, he's done this to hope that maybe she could become a man in some way. And I really don't think that's the case at all. I think he realized that death happens and like, you can't let kids not have fun and live if you're going to like, let them enjoy themselves like she could die tomorrow he might as well give her everything which is like a completely normal response to a tragedy like that did he go overboard definitely was he thinking at all about his wife who'd have to deal with the social ramifications or his daughter who would have to grow up in a world that doesn't accept her and not prepare her in any way to handle that no like that's not great of him but it came from a place of love and I think it came from a place of wanting her to be free in a way that her brothers who died would never get to be. And I don't think that was him trying to make her a boy or sad. He didn't have a son. I think that was just him seeing someone who also loved the sea and nurturing that. And I think it's really sad that everyone around him is trying to put on this idea that like, Oh, it's just cause he didn't have a son. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like, that's just, I don't know, poor Althea in that way. Like, <laughs> like you don't have to, just cause you have boy like interests doesn't mean that you're replacing a boy or you're trying to be a boy. Like it just is what you like. I don't know. But here the gender binary is very real. So <laughs> influence from Chelsea, as they said, previous chapters. Yes. So it is super scandalous that Althea is not only riding the ships but enjoying it and kind of wild and free there Um, i also kind of feel bad for kefria she's only slightly mentioned in passing and i kind of wonder what her life was like how growing up being kefria would have been because it kind of feels like even her mom thinks about althea more than she thinks of kefria and like obviously that's because she was like the correct child. She did everything right. She was, you know, now married and has two kids of her own and and, they haven't had problems apparently with that. So that's a great thing. And she doesn't need to worry about it. And obviously they don't need to give her any attention or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wonder if someone like Kyle was able to worm his way into her heart just by giving her attention. It kind of seems like she probably didn't get a lot of that. And so (laughs) it'd be pretty easy to make someone like you if they didn't get very much attention and you gave them attention. But yeah. Well, Robin Hobb acts like Ronica as well, because I think in the last trilogy, she's forgotten as well. Yes, (laughs) I know. It makes me so sad. (laughs) Poor Kefria. I just, every once in a while I think about her and I think of how sad it must have been to be her because like she didn't really get the chance to be free. I'm sure her mother placed a ton of like, pressure on her to be the good sister and like she didn't really get to explore anything else maybe she liked being a typical like woman of an old trader family like maybe she liked that role and that 
would be great. But I don't even know if she was given an opportunity to like anything else by her mom. So here we have her now. (laughs) Since Veronica was thinking about Althea's past, she kind of is catching up to the future here. And she had suggested to Efron, like, what use would Althea be on a ship without her father there? Maybe she should just stay home. And Efron was totally aghast at that idea. Says, our family live ship leave port without one of our blood aboard her? Do you know the kind of ill luck you'd be inviting, woman? The vivacia has not quickened yet. Surely Kyle, our marriage kin, should be sufficient. He has been Kefria's husband for close on fifteen years. Let Althea stay home for a time. It would do her hair and skin a world of good, and give her a chance to be seen about town. She is of an age to marry Ephron, or at least to be courted. But to be courted, she must first be seen. She first she appears but once or twice a year, a spring ball one year, a harvest gathering the next. Folks scarcely recognize her on the street, and when the young men of the trader families do see her, she is in trousers and jacket with her hair cued down her back and her skin like a tanned hide. It is scarcely a suitable way to present her if we wish to her to marry well. Marry well? Let her marry happy instead, as we did. Look at Kefria and Kyle. Remember how the talk raced through the town when I let an upstart sea captain with Chalcedian blood start courting my eldest? But I knew he was a man, and she knew what was in her heart, and they've been happy enough. Look at their children, healthy as gulls. No, Ronica, if Althea has to be kept on a leash and primped in powder to catch a man's eyes, then he's not the kind of man I want sniffing after her anyway. Let her be seen by a man who admires her spirit and strength. Soon enough, she'll have to settle down to be a lady, wife, and mother— I doubt she'll find that kind of monotony to her taste much, so let's allow the lass a life while she can have one. Having delivered his this statement, Efren had leaned back on his cushions, panting. So, I think this message from Efron is a great capture as to why I don't think he's a very good person. <laughs> <laughs> one of. I think there are other examples in this chapter that I'll talk about, but specifically this, that... He doesn't think Althea is going to spend the rest of her life on a ship. He doesn't think after she gets married, she doesn't get to do this anymore. She has to be a woman, a wife, a mother. That's what she has to be once she's married. And he has never said this to Althea. We know this because Althea thinks she's going to be on a ship for her whole life. She thinks even if she were to get married, she would stay on the ship. And... The fact that he hasn't told her that, like, he still expects her to uphold that part of the community guidelines of what it is to be a real woman is really horrible. Like, he is not setting her up for success in any way by letting by telling her to her face, like, go explore the things you love. I think it's great that you want to be on the sea. Let's have a wonderful life. Enjoy your freedom without also adding. But at a certain time you have to settle down. Like he's not giving her that last part and that's horrible. And also he's letting her think that she just gets to own the ship and that she'll be in charge of the ship someday. I, it just makes me feel really bad for Althea. Like that's So you not think fair. that he's a bad person because of that? Yeah. I don't think a good person lies to people like that. Do you think that he's deliberately lying to her or do you think that Althea's entitlement as well that we've seen is like, this is my ship. I have a connection. I'm going to captain her. Okay, obviously her entitlement is part of this, 
But where did she get that entitlement if not for the way that he has raised her with no and Ronica boundaries and Ronica, <laughs> no boundaries have been placed on her. And like, sure. yes, she's entitled and like she has problems are of her own. And like maybe he wasn't thinking about how what he was doing was a lie to her. But the I don't think I think, uh, <sighs> I think the fact that he hasn't thought through what will happen to his daughter and like what will actually what it will actually do to her to be like, I expect that someday you just won't be on a ship anymore. I think that's not something a good person does. Like good people think about how their actions affect other people. Do they not? I don't think that makes him a bad person. Cause then you're calling probably 80% of the world's bad people. <laughs> Maybe not 80%, but a large majority, you know, I, I think a lot of people, raise kids and we encounter those people in real life and be like, Ooh, your parents maybe didn't teach you the right manners or anything like that. You know, like we both worked in the service industry. Right. We, <laughs> we've had stories. So I, I, I don't know. I just think it makes him a flawed person. Well, okay. I just don't like, maybe we measure bad people differently. Yeah, I guess I think like, okay. I don't want to sit here and pretend like I understand what it takes to raise a child. I've never done that. I do have four younger siblings that I helped raise, but that doesn't mean I had like any actual hand in doing right. that. Like I wasn't in charge. I was a kid, but I like, I do think that like, it's great that he wanted to raise her with love and to f give her a place where she could be free and to explore her interests. That's amazing. But I think that, if you're not doing anything to then like set your child up for success, like you're at least at the very least a bad person for okay. not like or a bad I'll set, parent. I'll set this scenario up then. Okay. Is it worse to do what Efren has done and kind of like let them go free without setting expectations or, or limits or rules or have a parent that like, you can only do this. These are the limits. These are the rules. Which one is worst in your well, mind? Because to me, that's what it feels like in Bingtown. Those are the two kinds of parents. Right. Well, I and wanted... Efren is very rare in his kind of parenting. But I don't think you're describing Efren correctly, I think. Because he's on the surface saying you can do whatever you want, you're free. But also going to keep Althea to the same standard as the parent who had raised the child strictly. He just isn't telling her until it's until she gets married. You know, like that's his sure. plan, I guess. But they know once they're married, they're not like he doesn't have control of her anymore. Right. That's her society. It's like that's kind of the new family. I guess. Then. Sure. So I think he's going based off of his own standards of growing up in Bingtown and the own, you know, the society there of like, this is what the woman does. So that's what I'm assuming is going to happen. Okay. Let me phrase it to you then okay. in a way that make, might help you see it the way I'm seeing it. Do you think if you have a small toddler, there's one parent who says, okay, toddler, stay in this yard. Like you can do whatever you want in this yard, but just know here's the fence. Here's why we don't cross the fence, whatever. You have another parent who removes the fence and lets their toddler, toddler free and says, you can explore. Both parents know that beyond the fence line, one of which does not exist, is quicksand and alligators that will, if you go in that area, will kill you. Is it the parents' fault who didn't 
tell the kid why like that she needs to stay in that area is it their fault if their kid gets eaten or is it the fault of the kid for not being able to beat quicksand and alligators yeah everyone knows that quicksand is everywhere that's what i grew up with at least watching cartoons <laughs> but you see what i'm saying that like does that of make course, sense yeah I, I saw your your point before as well i just don't think that makes him a bad person because first of all there's not moral dangers in that immediate sense of not telling her this yes it would be a huge disappointment to her life or whatever and like probably make her feel differently about him as a father after any rude awakening like that happened right but it's not like crocodiles and stuff going to eat you right away. I get the analogy and I get where you're coming from with it. Right. I just don't think it makes him a bad person. Okay. Then I guess we just fundamentally disagree on this. I think we will. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I feel as though like not even setting her up to be prepared for that possibility. Like even if she found somebody who didn't do that to her, look, that's great. Look, if he, if he set those like expectations later on, he would be an, a, be a, an amazing parent and would probably be the best in Bingtown. And Althea would be much more mature than she is now, probably. But none of the parents that we see in Bingtown <laughs> are even remotely close to allowing the freedom that Efren does. Yeah. Like, he, he created a scandal with letting Ronica manage all of his funds. Not just her dowry, but, like, turn right. over his funds as well. Right. Does he leave that alone a little bit too much to go sailing? Sure. He's flawed. He doesn't help Ronica with his own stuff even. She just kind of like leaves that to her. Yeah. But that is a huge trust and Devad is like, oh yeah, right. You control his purse, not Efren. And like she gets flack for that. Right. And that's definitely counter to the certain culture. So he he has more modern philosophies and mindsets of People are equal right. than anyone else in town and raises his daughter such. Right. I think that also makes him a bad person. The fact that he left everything to her and didn't help even a little. That, <laughs> no. And it's I want to. It's a different conversation. I know. We're not but. there yet. That's why I wanted to wait till there. But like, I also feel like that's a mark of a bad person. I just. I'll be done after I say this. <laughs> I think. That it's he is a good person and that he is ahead of his time. I he don't understand. You. Let, I'm not done. Let me finish. I think there are parts of him that are good. I don't. I shouldn't say he's a bad person. Like he's in the bad person category fully or whatever. Like he obviously is ahead of his time. He is trying not to let gender stand in the way of what is expected of women and lets people earn things by their own merit, not by their reputation. He gives them second chances. Like that is the mark of a really good person. I agree. However, I think his willful ignorance to the way society works and not lifting a finger to help the women that are in his life navigate this society that does not feel the same way he does is mean. And I think it's not okay. I don't think it's right that he is letting Ronica deal with the flack, letting Althea deal with the flack because it doesn't affect him. The thing that he can control is like he's doing great at, but he also isn't doing anything to help them in the places that he can't control. And he, while he can't control their actions, he can control his inaction. And that's why I think he's a bad person. So do you think that everyone in Bingtown is a bad person then? I don't think they're great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll just leave it at that. But. 
I, I don't know. I think <laughs> I know I'm being really harsh and I know that like, obviously what I'm saying is like impossible for real people to follow. And maybe I shouldn't be saying bad person. Maybe I should. I don't know. I don't think it makes him a good person. I don't think he's like a saint. I don't think. No. Like, yeah, I that was know. never my argument either. But like, and like, maybe it seems too harsh because I'm saying bad person. Yeah. To me, Kyle is a bad person. Kenneth is a bad person. They have redeemable qualities, but they're bad people. Efren is a good person who has bad qualities. Okay. In my mind. I, get, I don't know. I guess I just don't know how to like explain it other than like to me he is a bad person but i understand that like on the scale of like efren vestrit to kyle and even kennett like clearly nowhere close to them do you think do you think efren is a better father than birik (laughs) this is that's a tough one i just kind of popped into my head oh no i don't because i think he he is in certain respects but he spoiled Althea too much. I think. And didn't set like, this is how you yeah. do a job. He just kind of was setting her up to be a successor in a wealthy family. A trust fund baby, basically. Yeah, I think. Ooh. I feel like Beric is a better father and that he explains why he sets boundaries and yeah. also leads by example. And whenever he's disappointed explains why he's disappointed. And like, I don't know. I just feel like he's also an alcoholic and does hit fits (laughs) when he does something wrong. Okay. (laughs) See, like these are the kinds of things that it's just like, I think he's a good person. He just has bad qualities. They're different bad qualities than Beric's bad qualities, but like, so maybe, I don't know. There's a give and take. That's, that's my point. That's my point. I guess maybe I should say like, instead of saying he's a bad person, I should say he's more of a bad parent with, like that's fair bad, he I, makes bad life choices i don't know like <laughs> he's a good person that always chooses the wrong choice i don't know like <laughs> i don't i just it feels like willful ignorance and i don't like that i like think he's yeah. smarter than the choices he has made in his life and that to me feels Possibly. bad that makes yeah. him like you know what i mean i don't know i i don't know i don't yeah. know how to like explain we obviously have different ideas of what makes a good <laughs> or bad person We've talked about that for a while. We're like four pages into the chapter of like 30 or something. So, But I think it was a good conversation and, and something that is interesting be, to have now because, one, this is a chapter named after him. Two, we don't see him much after this. So right. I think getting a good base of where Althea is coming from and Ronica's pain and what she is used to is a good place to kind of jump off into their characters. Right. So. So back to this marriage conversation. Oh, actually, uh, before you continue on with the story, sorry. Um, There's a couple things in here that are kind of touch points for future plot lines. Yeah. One is that Althea is like, we said 18, probably almost 19 or around that. Right. And Ronica says she is of age to be married or to be courted. and. This comes up kind of big into tertiary questions with the multiplot line later of like, how old is she? Like, when do they expect her to start courting? Like, when is she a woman? That sort of thing. So I think it's important to point out that like 1819 is very, very, very socially acceptable 
to be married, maybe young, but married, or to be courted to be married. And Malta's like 12 or 13 or something. And I will say that I know for a fact that they say that she's too young. Like they say. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. We'll we'll talk about that when we get there. I just wanted that as like a, this is an age where it's okay. Right. So we can discuss that. Right. Because I don't think they mention much about the social standards of Bingtown and like what those age milestones are. Right. But 18 apparently is legal i don't know but yeah but not like coming into her own majority right which althea mentioned like she would still be under kyle and ronica's sway if her dad died right i don't i don't understand like 20 whatever whatever it is also maybe your own majority is whenever you get married because you're considered a real adult i have no idea so i just want to kind of that that touchstone put down there also they are assuming that Kyle and Kefria are happy because they have three children, not two, as you had said earlier. I, um, I think I was just reading. Oh, right. What it said. Well, that's because I look at their children healthy as gulls. So I don't think I, I don't. You think said, I said two said children. Two. You specifically said two and I was going to correct you, but you were in the middle. Oh, of okay. Two. Yeah. Um, but they have three children. And so they're like, see, According things Kyle, are great. I have two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things are great. Um, just because they have kids together, which also we will learn, not not necessarily true. No, but I think that is a specific Bingtown standard because of the whole difficulty to conceive and carry to term, like curse of the cursed shores and the rain wild. Right. I think that is like a mark of a healthy family and like a well-functioning family is how many kids and how healthy are they. Hmm. Right. I feel like Bingtown has kind of operated on the the layperson's understanding of the Middle Ages of like, oh, they marry young and they have lots of kids and they're right. <laughs> so, a big part of this conversation of wanting Elthea to say from Veronica's point of view is that she wants her to be known around town, to have yes. time to look like a real woman and not all harsh from the sea, and you know, Vest or Efren has kind of put his foot down and said, no, she has to be on the ship that she needs to have this freedom before she's tied up in marriage. And also the live ship needs a blood member of the family on board, which is a big plot point later too. Right. And Ronica, because he was so ill had swallowed her ire that he could so disparage the life that she had led and thrust down the jealousy she felt for her own daughter's freedom in careless ways. Nor had she mentioned that the way the family fortunes were going, there might be a need for Althea to marry well. Then she goes on to think about how if she could have tamed her daughter, she could have married her off to a wealthy family and maybe one down the Rainwild River so that they could take over her debt, her debt, family debt as a wedding gift. Um, this is specifically, it doesn't say down the Rainwild because we don't know that there are traders down there says to off to one of their creditors. Yes. Which is like for the readers in the first part of the book, that's to keep the secret and have it a surprise later on, but also general enough. So it's like, Oh, they're in debt to other people and you can wipe away some with a marriage dowry, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. So a marriage gift, not dowry, excuse me. Yeah. So that's kind of like, she's kind of mad about that. She's feeling jealous, but she knows that, 
she had married Efren for love and had allowed Kefria to do the same. And so even though she knows that it would be better to force Althea to marry someone wealthy, that ultimately she's hoping that Althea can find someone she loves. Yep. And I think this really explains why they don't get along. I think Ronica would have loved to be allowed to be free, to go on the ship, to... Or just have freedom to not be tied down to, you know, lands and financials and And governing things. Right. And having to be a mom and stay around like that isn't the life everybody wants to choose. And she's been forced into it. And her husband is kind of writing that off as something that eventually will happen to Althea. So give her the freedom now. And she's mad because she was never given that freedom. And also clearly her husband looks down on what she has been doing to her. That's her perspective of what he's saying. And I think that really explains why they butt heads so much because Ronica kind of feels like, well, she already got all this freedom. Why does she need more? She needs to grow up. And Althea's like, I've only ever had freedom. Why would I need to do this? (laughs) So it's just two very different life perspectives. And I don't, I don't think it's fair. Like, I don't think it's like a great mentally healthy sign that you're jealous of your daughter and the life right. she's leading. Like, maybe do some introspection. <laughs> but there are no therapists here, and I'm not a therapist, so what do I know? Um, but Ronica keeps going on and is talking about how we're in the present now. We're looking out mm-hmm. the window and that she used to really enjoy looking out the window. And when she had finished that conversation with Efren, she had been looking out the window, but now the tree is bare. Yes. There are no more leaves and it's the middle of summer. I do want to point out in that previous passage uh, where she says, perhaps they could wet her off to one of their creditors, preferably a generous one who would forgive the family's debt as a wedding gift. And then as, you know, hoping Althea falls um, for someone that she loves, both of those things do happen in the future. It's a very foreshadowy thing. Yes. She falls in love and does marry Brashen after some butting of the heads between those two continued. Mm-hmm. But uh, Malta is married off to a wealthy family who buys the debt from one of their creditors. Yes. So she marries uh, Rain Cupris and the Cupris family buys the debt from a different Rain Wild Trader family and forgives it as a wedding gift. You know what? Ronica Vestret needs to stop making wishes because she like, is like the monkey paw, paw of people. Yes. Like yeah. literally every oh, time she. <laughs> I wish my husband could stay for a year. Oh, I will eventually. <laughs> yes, you will. But you'll be sick the whole time and then die at the end. <laughs> like literally, I have never once seen someone so good at manifesting, but in the worst ways. Like <laughs> She really puts it out there in the universe and the universe is like, OK, but but bad. Like, <laughs> but bad things happen in between then. Yeah. And also not the way you wanted it to. Okay. And like, I don't know, poor Ronica in that way. Like (laughs) it all kind of works out, you know, must be a nice, also horrible gift. Yes. (laughs) So she goes on to, after she is now taking care of her sick husband, kind of cleaned him off and made sure he was still sleeping. Okay. She goes back to the books. Mm -hmm. She's been keeping the books for the whole time they've been married and she is going over them now for this month's ledger and it's really frustrating 
And it's even more frustrating because she knows afterward Efren is going to want to look over it and the numbers aren't looking very good. Mm -hmm. Somehow it was more depressing now that she knew Efren would insist on looking over the book the next time he awoke. For years, he had taken almost no interest in the running of the farms and the orchards and the other holdings. I'll leave them in your competent hands, my dear, he would tell her whenever she tried to present her worries to him. I'll take care of the ship and see she pays herself off in my lifetime. To you, I entrust the rest. It had been both heady and frightening to have her husband trust her so. It was not that unusual for wives to manage the wealth they brought with them as dowries, and many of the women in time quietly handled substantially more than that. But when Efren Vestret openly turned over the directing of almost all his holdings to his young wife, it near scandalized Bingtown. It was no longer the fashion for women to take a hand in the financial end of things. It smacked of their old pioneer life to revert to such a custom. The old Bingtown traders had always been known for their innovative ways, but as they prospered, it had become a symbol of wealth to keep one's women folk free of such tasks. Now it was seen as both plebeian and foolish to so entrust a trader's fortune to a woman. And Ronica had known it was not just his fortune Efren had put in her hands, but his reputation as well. She vowed to be worthy of that trust. And for 30, wi- 30 years, everything had prospered until, you know, the war up north and everything kind of declined all of their profits and slim margins. Plus the slave trade moved in with, you know, lower cost of labor, bunch of stuff. Right. So I do want to talk for a minute about the handling of the books and this weird societal norm in Bingtown. So everybody knows that the women actually take care of the books. They quietly take on more as they get older. Nobody talks about it, but it happens. But then as soon as the Vestrits openly do it, it's a scandal and like, how dare they? Right. It's a, that's not wealthy of you. And it's like, you're literally, all the families are doing it too. Well, I don't understand. It's this Bingtown, really weird. Yeah. Bingtown is so weird with the influences from Chalced directing like their social standards. And then Jamalian influence for like the court. I don't know. It's just right. everything's all image and we have to uphold like the, tra- the traditions and Things that are unseemly are disgusting. And I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. A weird mixture of everything. Right. I think it's especially funny that it's specifically said that the big big town, old big town traders are known to be people who. Oh, what's the word? The old Bingtown traders had always been known for their innovative ways, but as they prospered, it had become a symbol of wealth to keep one's women folk free of such tasks. Right. So we're innovative unless it goes against tradition, which is the opposite of innovative. Well, this is, I think this is um, the old Bingtown traders since their inception of when they first came to probably a couple, like a hundred years ago or a couple hundred years ago, they had been innovative. And then the Chelsea had kind of creeped in and right. for the past hundred or whatever. they <laughs> they've been, Well, it's not fashionable to do so. Right. So we'll but, just kind of stagnate. Yeah. I just think it's really funny how there's this idea that like also that the old traders are all like the peak of everything you want to be and nothing that they're doing can be wrong because it's tradition and we can't Mm -hmm. fight tradition even though the tradition has been warped by other cultures 
The it's, old ruling class is elite. And that yes. is, I mean, that's like the whole thing is like the old Bingtown traders are the best and they know the best. And nothing can ever change because they're doing it the right way. And it's just so interesting that they don't see that as like mm-hmm. a negative, but they don't. Um, I also think this is like, obviously I'm not going to go back into my tirade, but this is another touch point where I think that it wasn't very fair of Efron to not help at all in the financials or like work at home. Like obviously it's great that he trusted her and it's amazing that he like didn't care for what society had said. However, I think that he still could have helped. It's like when there's dirty dishes and like the husband's like, Oh, is there anything I can do to help? It's like, well, you could do the dishes that you just saw like as you walked past, but why why do I have to tell you to do them? Right. And yet like, Except in this case, it'd be like, no, no, darling, there's nothing you can do. Or like, oh, please, darling, please help me with the dishes. There's too many. And he's like, no, I trust you to do them. You wash them really well. Like, oh, okay. I guess I'll just go drown myself in the sink then. Like, (laughs) it's horrible. I don't know. I just hate it. I wish that he gave her more support. And like, it's not fair that he got to live this such a wonderful, free, cool life and she had to struggle with everything else. That's not fair. And as much as I don't like Ronica, I still don't think she deserved that. But also, I think she has this external pressure. She feels as though the reputation of the house vestrate is on her shoulders. That is what has been given over to her, over to her and so she's going to do everything she can to keep Efron's wishes to keep the family looking good in the eyes of other people. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important to note because that seems to be her driving factor. And it also seems to be something that she is entirely made up on her own because Efron. Yeah, definitely. Clearly does not care what other people think. (laughs) I mean, he on his own, despite Ronica saying like, please trade up the rain wild river so we can make more money. He's like, nah, I'm good. Don't mess with that. Don't want to bring the blood plague down. Like, it's just it. the view of him that people have just doesn't factor into his decisions. Right. Which is an interesting way to live. And it's great. And I, I mean, good on him, but also like clearly his wife can't live that way. <laughs> and like she needed help and he could have given her that support, but he didn't. And so for the last 36 years, she's been in charge of everything that goes on in the fields, at home, um, the land work um, and their money. And for 30 of the 36 years, things were great. They were well off even. And they were comfortable. (laughs) Had they not had the heavy debt from constructing the vivacia to pay off, they would have been wealthy folk. Even as it had been, they'd been comfortable, and in some years, a bit more than that. Not so the last five years. In that time, they had slipped from comfortable to well off. And then to what Ronica had come to think of as anxious. The money went out almost as swiftly as it came in, and always it seemed she was asking a creditor to wait a day or a week until she could pay him. Over and over she had gone to Efren to beg his advice. He had demurred to her, telling her to sell off what was not profitable to shore up what was. But that was what that was the problem. Most of the farms and orchards were doing as well as they had ever had in producing, but they were cheap slave-grown grain and fruit from Chalsea to compete with. And the damned red ship wars to the north, destroying trade there, and the thrice damned pirates to the south. Shipments set forth never arrived at their destinations, and expected profits did not return. 
She feared constantly for the safety of her husband and daughter, always out at sea, but Efren seemed to class pirates with stormy weather. They were simply among the hazards a good sea captain had to face. He might come home from his voyages and tell her unnerving tales of running from sinister ships, but all of his stories had happy endings. No pirate vessel could hope to run down a live ship. When she had tried to tell him of how severely the war and the pirates were affecting the rest of the family fortunes, he would laugh good-naturedly and tell her that he and the Vivacia would but work all the harder until things came right. Back then, he had not been interested in seeing the books, but now that he has fallen sick and has pretty much nothing to do, he is interested. And Veronica's threat, or, uh, fretting about it because they don't look good. Right. <laughs> Also, she recalled in frustration that he had seemed able to only see his voyages were successful and that the trees bore fruits and the grains ripened in their fields as they always had. He would always then, seeing that, go back to the sea with Althea and would leave her to cope. And I think that's really rough for her. She is trying really hard to get him to see that things are not as good as they once were, that there are things happening and he just has no interest in listening or figuring it out with her or working together to find a solution. He just assumes that like nothing bad will ever happen to them. It's fine. Nothing bad has happened yet. He's going to make more money. It's fine. But when she asks him if maybe he could trade up the rain wild, right? Rain wild river to make them more money, to be more profitable he just says no. They had the rights the, and the contracts in the live ship. In the days of his grandmother and father, that had been the principal source of their trade goods. But ever since the blood plague days, he had refused to go up the Rainwild River. There was no concrete evidence that the sickness had come from the Rainwilds. Besides, who could say where the sickness came from? There was no sense in blaming themselves and in cutting themselves off from the most profitable part of their trade. But Ephron had only shaken his head and made her promise never to suggest it again. He would, he told her, rather they be poor than risk paying the price of working with magic. And that is why they are where they are now. Mm -hmm. She slowly sold off some of the properties that would, you know, get them through some years, but they're down to minimal lands and just kind of hoping they make it through and trade picks up again. Right. Um, I think it's really important that we find out that Ronica doesn't even know for sure that the rain wilds is what caused the sickness. Right. Yeah. That like that's all Efren's superstition on his own and that he's being really stubborn about not taking anything from there anymore because he already lost three children. And I think it's fair that he has that fear. I mean, he did lose three kids, almost four. And it makes sense that he would have taken a break. But I think the fact that he's ignoring what his wife is telling him that like things aren't going well and like things aren't as profitable as they used to be. And he's not looking into how things, why things are changing or what's different. He just is thinking about himself and his boat, like, that's not great. <laughs> that's not, like, a good decision to make, and it's leaving Ronica in this horrible position of selling off to people that are new, and that's not what she wants to do. That's not really what anybody wants to do because nobody likes the new traders, the capital mm -hmm. N new traders. Yes, so we get our introduction to that and how slaves 
and the slave trade has been brought to Bingtown. So she is originally from the Carrick family, which is also a capital old um, trader family. Yes. One of the original Bingtown trader families. And it did nothing for her fears to see other old families floundering as hungry young merchants moved into Bingtown, buying up old holdings and changing the the ways things had always been done. They'd brought the slave trade to Bingtown, at first as merchandise on their way to Chalced States, but lately it seemed that the flow of slaves that passed through Bingtown surpassed every other trade. But the slaves didn't flow through anymore. More and more of the fields and orchards were being worked with slaves now. Oh, the landowners claimed they were indentured servants, but all knew that such, quote, servants were routinely sent on to Chalced and sold as slaves if they proved unwilling workers. More than a few of them wore slave tattoos on their faces. It was yet another Chalcedian custom that seemed to have gained popularity in Jamalia and was now beginning to be accepted in Bingtown as well. It was these, quote, new traders, Ronica thought bitterly. They might have come to Bingtown from Jamalia City, but the baggage they brought with them seemed directly imported from Chalced. Ostensibly, it was still against the long Bingtown to keep slaves except as a transient trade goods, but that did not seem to bother the new traders. A few bribes at the tax docks and the satraps' treasury agents became very gullible, more than willing to believe that folk with tattooed faces and chained in coffles were indentured servants, not slaves at all. And they wouldn't have gained anything by speaking out about their nature because they had just been shipped off to Chelsea. And the old traders, apparently, uh, the council, had complained in vain, and now even a few of the old families had begun to flout the slavery law. Traders like Devad Restart, she thought bitterly. And herself. <laughs> As she has rage, like we talked about in the beginning, I think that whole section that you read really speaks to how she's putting herself above that and how she's different because she's a yeah a real old trader and she sticks to her guns. But Explaining she, away like the differences of like the little nitpicky things of like, oh, you know, she's not chained. I don't beat her. She's... Yeah. Seems like she could be great and she should stay with our family because she seems smart. And she doesn't deserve to be a slave, but also was kind of threatening to send her off to Chalced for not doing her job correctly. Well, which sending her back to Devad, which she knows would, would mean go being to, yeah. sent off to Chalced. Yes. So, like, I don't know. It's just another hypocrisy thing, another area where she's not at fault. This isn't a change that she's partaking in. This is just some of the the other old families that are being tainted by the new traders. Well, as she's thinking of that, the rustle of Rachel's skirts broke her attention. She lifted her eyes to the servant girl. Ronica was so weary of the mixture of anger and sorrow she always saw in Rachel's face. Well, wouldn't she be <laughs> yes. sorrowful and anger, angry if you went through what she did? Right. But she brings in the news that Devad... Uh, has come to speak with Efren. And I think before we dive into the new section here, we will take a bit, bit of a break. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you have anything else to say, please let us know at isfitshappy at gmail.com or our social medias, isfitshappy, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What do you think about this first part of the uh, chapter so far? There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot to unpack, I guess. <laughs> there isn't a lot, I guess, if you think about it. I mean, it's it shows a, a really good glimpse into Bingtown's social structure and how a non 
immature person who has lived in Bingtown all their life thinks of Bingtown and, and what it's like. Right. Because right? we've only seen the inside of Althea's head about Bingtown a little bit or that dynamic. Brashen didn't really touch on it at all. Right. And he's only 24 as well. So <laughs> seeing somebody who has raised kids who has been in charge of a holding and has some of those dynamics and like political structure down is very interesting. I, I also think. think she's definitely like she's been raised there and never really did a bunch of traveling. So this is all she knows. So it also is interesting to come from that perspective of someone who has only ever known this one way of living. And there's these new people coming in and what it means that they're changing that. Right. I think obviously when you read from a younger person's point of view, change is just part of life. And I think just naturally younger people tend to not think as much about what changes are being made. And then a person who has lived through more, who can see the changes and knows what this change means for that outcome, we're getting Mm -hmm. to see more of what that means in a deeper sense instead of just like, oh, well, some things are different when I was a kid, but I didn't really participate then. And now I'm participating. You can you can really see Ronica's intelligence and foresight in the conversation with Devad because he is none of those things. Right. (laughs) But she kind of brings up, you know, the consequences of some of these actions and can see where those things are leading, which yes, in some cases is definitely a little overbearing (laughs) for, for definitely some situations, but she is intelligent and she can see where those things are going. And it's an interesting look into, you know, the upcoming conflicts that we will have in Bing town over the next couple books. Yeah. And I definitely think it gives us a good groundwork of, what some of the other trader families are probably thinking as well. Yeah. This is a good peek into a quote unquote normal person's viewpoint. This is probably not unique to Ronica's ideals of what is happening. Whereas Althea or Brashen are kind of on the outskirts of society and Malta is too young to really know anything. Kyle is also a kind of outsider. So this is like the only perspective we get that is on the quote unquote inside. Mm-hmm. So even though she's kind of different from other families, she's not super different and she's not really trying to mess with the status quo. And I think that's a really important viewpoint to have. Yeah. And and we're set up. So another part of this that I, I really like actually is that we're kind of intro, especially on a reread We're we're introed when you first read through it with like, Oh, old traders. Good. Efron. Good. Ronica. Eh, kind of mean, but ultimately good. She's right. part of the Vestrid family. Althea, good. Brashen, good. New traders, bad. Yeah. And then on rereads here, you can see kind of subtle differences. Like, yes, the, the slavery was kind of brought in. Total bad thing to do. Slave trade, horrible. But you can see the underlying tones of like, the old traders are just elitist and they're want to stick to their traditions and they need an upheaval and it kind of sets the the landscape for the changes in the third book that right. happen yeah which are definitely needed and they like restructure everything where you know the former slaves get do they call themselves map faces or the yeah. tattooed uh, or maybe the tattooed with a capital t okay Something like that. I think map face is like, it's like derogatory. derogatory. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Um, then the three ships, you know, families, they get part of the council and the old ship trader. You know, all of those people have like says then and they get an actual 
like democracy, democracy kind of. slash, you know, rep- republic kind of going on uh, instead of just the classism that they have now. So looking back on a reread, I can kind of see those threads being set up and the undertones that are problems in Bingtown while it's being phrased and presented as like, these are the good guys. These people don't really matter because they're just here living their life. And these people right. are bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think I definitely feel like I'm taking a harsher role this series. I mean, I'm always really mean to all the characters, <laughs> but I think, Which is like, fine. yeah. And I think especially to like right off the bat, start this new series where I'm like really hammering, like these people are horrible. They're like making all these bad choices. Like I don't actually hate these characters. I don't like hate no, these yeah. people. I don't hate Ronica. And I think there are like justified reasons why she is the way she is. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's important to start off, especially at the beginning of the series that we lay the foundation of like how deeply flawed these people are. And like, then can see the growth. And then also just like, obviously I'm coming at this from a person who lives in the 21st century where women have a little bit more autonomy and like, I'm going to be a little bit more sensitive to things like Ronica and Althea and Kefria and like all these women that have to deal with a society where they aren't really seen as full people like I'm going to be more sensitive to that than you are. And I'm going to like be upset about it probably a lot more, (laughs) which is like a good to have both of our perspectives on this for that reason. Um, but I think like sometimes I'll probably get caught up in it and (laughs) that's like not great. And I'm here to maybe unfairly say like, well, measure them by the world that they live in and not our standards. Right. Right. And it isn't fair, but it is good to bring up and like, it's, it's part of the character, you know, dissection that we're doing too. Yes. Yeah. And just to talk about how much different it could be. And like, obviously Ronica doesn't have any experience living in this time period where women get to wear pants and do whatever they want. So like you can't fault her for like not being able to see that vision of a future or Efren's grandmother who was the captain of the ship, you know, like, right. Like Like she wasn't part of that either. She unfortunately grew up in a time period where she was expected to be one thing and one thing only. And that's really unfortunate, but I like do still want to call out how that is wrong. And like, show like the the ways in which like she is making poor choices in what she is given and like obviously like you can only do so much with what you're given but I think Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to be hard on her even (laughs) if I feel sorry for her and like want her to do like have a better life like (laughs) well this this trilogy is way more gray than the farseer trilogy yes and partially because it's multiple characters, multiple multiple perspectives, you get a little bit more humanity from each side and just a bit more nuance right. with their thoughts and their perspectives. With Fitz, you got, you know, the black and white, these are bad, these are good. And we still tried to dive in and tried to grab, you know why is regal the way he is and yeah like we're not just like yeah he is bad but there are still like (laughs) big forces of evil in the first one and this one not really at least so far you know there there are definitely driving factors later on that we'll talk about but this this series overall is a lot more nuanced i think and a stronger overall trilogy than the first one right 
And I think part of that does stem from getting so many different perspectives from different walks of life. We get different people and different genders. And that also definitely plays a role in seeing how society is. Like I, I do wonder what Buck Keep would have been like if we would have gotten to see from a woman's perspective and Captain how Kins that would have... Was, would have been just depressing. So. <laughs> Definitely. But I think... Probably like, Molly's as well. I think one of the things I like about this is that we get more female interaction. I yeah. think Robin Hobb doesn't make two-dimensional female characters regularly in her other series. Like I think she does a good job at writing women as people in the series where we only get to see a man's point of view. But I also like here where we're seeing dynamic women from their point of view and reading in their head. Because before this series, really you only read books with women main characters. Yes. Yeah. So I'm coming from a background of like, I typically only read from female perspectives because I felt more comfortable reading that. Yeah. And so I think I like this where there's not what sometimes happens when you read from a female character where it's like, everything is lovey dovey. And there's like this like kind of sheen of romance is really what's most important to me. And like everything else is kind of background. Um, obviously I've read books that are not like that, but like kind of a lot of them can also be like that. And so it's like really nice to have these dynamic female characters and to also not like some of them. Yeah. I think it's good to have women that you don't agree with and female villains, quote unquote. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think I would be friends with anybody in in the series that we've met so far hmm. maybe maybe Wintro. i just think he'd be like too righteous and spacey brashen could be okay but he seems pretty uptight and i, I don't know althea way too entitled ronica think- way too strict efron <laughs> ooh, i don't know i think who some of the people become later oh yeah definitely definitely but yeah like as it stands at the moment I don't know. I mean, well, I'd Kyle like to have seems like a good guy. <laughs> I think I'd like to be best friends with Kyle. Um, <laughs> no, I think the it'd be other, fun to talk actually, to all of them. Uh, <laughs> the serpents. I like Malkin a lot. <laughs> no. He's really direct. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in. Please go to our website, isfitshappy.com, and you can find links to all of our social medias there or other places to listen, and also links to rate and review us if you would like to do so. Please reach out if you have any questions or theories. Can't wait to hear what you have to say. All right. So this week we don't have a ton to touch on. Um, It's all kind of surrounding Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) So so we're just going to do a quick touch up on some things that we've gotten from uh, our listeners that are talking about Kyle And um, I'm kind of excited to talk about it. So first, I want to start with some Facebook messages we got from Ellen. Ellen was talking about how she also does not like Kyle. (laughs) I don't think anybody likes Kyle, to be fair. (laughs) If you do, please write in. (laughs) Right. And also, in general, she doesn't like reading the beginning of this book. She's read a few chapters ahead, she says. And I agree with her. There's just, it's so messy. And like nothing fun happens yeah it's it's hard because we're we are in the same world but there's still so much of reset up happening and that makes it a little bit less fun to read i think personally i don't love world setup i like world setup a lot but i think this is just it's just the character interactions are just painful to me (laughs) and i don't the issue is i don't like 
many of the characters. Fair, fair. That's why maybe that's why I gravitated more towards the serpents because like they were interesting and intriguing. Like I want to know more about like oh what's what part do they have to play or Paragon right. like he appeared like ooh live <laughs> ship perspective that's cool. But then it's just like oh family drama and like eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so definitely a little bit of a hard read in the beginning yeah. for so, Ellen, which is fair. And specifically surrounding Kyle. Yes. Um, Ellen also, besides all that, <laughs> was writing in to remind us that Evron doesn't, is forced to choose Kyle because of Ronica, which yes. we went over this, obviously, this episode. Yeah, these were comments um, on last episode, obviously. Yes, so. I should have said, started with that. I think it was implied. <laughs> <laughs> However, Ellen also makes a really good point that Efron probably doesn't know Kyle super well mm-hmm. that how could he if he's gone most of the year and the rest of it he's not really like probably spending quality time with his son-in-law right yeah. so enough to meet him shake his hand like oh you're a captain of other ships like great like right. you and my daughter seem to be in love <laughs> you have healthy kids how did it, how did that shipment go you yeah. made it Great, cool. All right, I'm going to take a visit to the orchards. Oh, they're flowering. I'm gone. Yeah. Right. yeah. Another <laughs> another trading trip. But I do think that's a really interesting point that Ellen brings up that we didn't touch on, that um, that is kind of a blind spot for Efron, is that he doesn't really know Kyle very well. And maybe he wouldn't have been able to be as swayed by Ronica telling him that he has to for the sake of their image yeah. if he would have known who Kyle is. Yeah. And also, Ellen is kind of on your side with this and says, I do, however, agree with Emma that he's not the saint, meaning Efron, the saint that Althea thinks him to be. I start to see him as rather negligent and impulsive, and it really can't have been easy to try and hold a household together with him. Which is kind of what we went over this time as well. Speaking specifically of, you know, the books and helping with um, managing the estates and, and the holdings and things like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put him. And like, I think as we went over, obviously he's not like a bad person in the right. name of other bad people, but like, I don't know. He doesn't make the best choices. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Ellen, for bringing that perspective to the table. And then we also got an email from Jonas, uh, also talking about Kyle in Woo-hoo. the previous episode, <laughs> to also talk about how how Kyle is just this, I don't even know, Kyle. So, yeah, so Jonas says that he is not caught up with the podcast. So it's actually kind of funny that he wrote in talking about things and kind of defending Kyle at the beginning of the book, right? At the at the beginning of the yes. book. And said that he was doing a reread a little bit ago with, to to keep in mind, like, an open mind for Kyle when he was going in, just to see, like, where the character is coming from. And he puts down a lot of really, really interesting details and kind of things that we've covered already, how he is way more sympathetic if you try to get in his shoes, which sucks to get into his shoes. But like he has reasons for the things that he's doing and what he feels like, you know, how where he was raised in, like the kind of values he was raised with. He seems to think like a man needs to be in charge of the family. So with Efren dying and the debts that he sees the family in, 
he feels like it's his place to step up and take on the whole responsibility of the whole family. So yeah, tons of pressure. He feels it's his job to do so. Right. Does that make him a bad person? No. The other crap stuff he does makes him a bad person. Right. And Jonas is not like letting him off the hook for his no, other crap no. stuff. Definitely <laughs> says, I, for the record, I'm only talking about trying to understand where he's coming from. I think he's wrong from the start and he's a sexist and not very nice nor a gentle man. But I can see his point of view and how he thinks he's doing good for the family. Kyle Haven seemed to me less like an evil man, looking at you, Regal. To me, this reread, and much more like an old-school, macho, sexist man who is in the wrong culture and time for his morals. And the more his family makes this obvious to him, the more he sort of gives up and become hurt. And he's kind of the person who reacts badly to being hurt and returns the favor. Right. Which and- is a very good perspective to to have because he is very of that machoism kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Kyle is definitely a capital B bad person. And I don't think I'll get any slack for calling him a bad person. No, he he is a bad person. But I kind of agree with Jonas that he's not an evil man. No. Yeah. Uh, He does chop off the fingers of his own son. So maybe he's He's a bad person person with a penchant to have some evil qualities. (laughs) It's. Morality is such a gray area, right? Yeah, like yeah, there is. isn't really a black or white for morality. It's not like good or bad. Like everybody's a little bit of both. But Kyle is so interesting. I think it is right to call him not evil, though. I mean, especially after yeah. coming from the last series where Regal like actually killed his own family members just for power and not even like because he thought it was the right thing to do just because he wanted to. Yeah, I like, think I mean, the intentions obviously aren't everything, but I think his in his mind, his intentions are good and he is trying to better everyone's situation. But the way he does, it makes him a bad person. Right. Like when but he, he's not evil because of that reason. No. And like when he chops off his son's finger, he's not doing that to like because he thinks it's fun or because he wants to right. or like just because it's like because he thinks it'll toughen his son up and teach him a lesson. And like, is that right? No, absolutely no, not. Does no. that make it OK? No, no, no. Does that make him a bad person? Yes. Yeah. But does it make him evil? borderline but maybe not (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't i don't know but yeah it's really interesting that from different people now before we even kind of recorded this or you know are releasing it to the world yes uh we we've gotten comments of like well kyle isn't completely garbage and Ellen, Ellen thanked us for last episode of kind of putting him into some perspective right. because it's, she said it made it more bearable to read through his parts, <laughs> which totally agree. That's yeah. why I'm trying to like do that too in this read through. Definitely a bad person, but it's very interesting to kind of analyze why he's doing the things he's doing. And it does, it does frame him in my mind a bit more. So it was, uh. Great comments from Jonas as well, who I don't even think has caught up and has heard the last couple. Yeah. So it is good. And I think it does like serve as a reminder that it's important to like try to look into other people, if not to help you have a more bearable reading, but also, (laughs) (laughs) but also because it like does show you how like well-rounded these characters are. Like that's a real life thing to see someone who 
is evil, but also being able, like, there is enough information about Kyle that we can reach in to his background and understand where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, there aren't very many books out there, I think. I mean, maybe there are. There's a lot of books out there. But, like, <laughs> on the whole, the what the average person reads, I don't think there's a ton of books that you really get to come across where even the background evil characters are so well-rounded. Right. Like, all the people that we come in contact with, we get a rounded version of them and we like get to know things about them where they feel like real people. And even if with knowing everything about them, we don't like them at the end, we still get a full picture of who they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. And it really speaks to Robin Hobb's ability as a writer. And this isn't, you know, totally on topic, but <laughs> kind of tangentially related we spoke a lot about Robin Hobbs world building versus, you know, character work in the very beginning of our podcast in the beginning of the trilogy and how I said like the world building is pretty threadbare, but there's small lines that you can kind of glean, you know, details and fill in as you go. Uh, this trilogy is a lot more rich in those details and you get a lot of the background where you need to fill in for those characters through these little like thoughts of uh, the Chalcedian, you know, social roles came in where the women don't need to do anything. You learned in the previous trilogy that they were slavers, but now you learn that like they They're have also a very, sexist. Yeah, a very <laughs> sexist setup or quote unquote traditional for, you know, some things way of setting up their houses yeah. and their, their work structures. Just like those little things seem to come in, a little bit quicker in this setup of the trilogy. So I guess things that we've like, maybe that's why it's more difficult to read through Yeah, as well, because yeah, we've all read it before. We have a pretty good mind in our, if you're following along, I'm assuming you have a pretty good image in your head of what the world of the realm of the elderlings looks like and all these different places and what these different values are. But for a first time reader, it's a ton of new information kind of being fed into you. Right. So no, definitely. It's also a, a big contrast there. Yeah. And I know I've a lot of people have read this one first mistakenly, and <laughs> what a wild like yeah. whiplash to go to Fitz's point of view then. <laughs> right, exactly, and never really seeing these characters again in the, the right. rest of the books except the the last ones. I don't know. It's uh yeah, it's kind of wild. But these are the favorites of a lot of people for a reason. Yeah. So thank you, Jonas, for bringing up that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I do also want to quick touch on something that um, I forgot to bring up and that has to do with Kyle. So I think it's a good time to do it now. Last chapter, we had a lot, a little bit of a conversation where Althea is kind of classist and racist against Chalcedians, how she said that he's basically a wharf rat and that he doesn't have any talent and there's no skill, like really going after him. And we just learned this chapter that he's actually from a pretty well-known family. And even though he's on an old trader, like his family's well off. And I think that's really interesting because if we wouldn't have had that perspective from Ronica Vestrit, we never would have known that Kyle actually did come from wealth and he did come from a well-known yeah, family. Now that I, like, I know I'm the one who originally said that his family was well off, but I don't think it specifically says that. I'm just kind of assuming that with the respect that Ronica has for the Haven family name. Right. Well, yeah, because with her, it kind of feels like if you have money, then you're respectable. <laughs> Not always. A, a lot of it's, I think, down to how old the family is. Not That's one fair. of the original ones, but it's like they've been there a long time yeah. and they're not considered, you know, a new trader or a three ships right. trader. So they're they're old to be respectable. 
but I think that would translate into wealthy as well. Yeah. That's that's my assumption. So I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. Yeah. But I think like in general, it's really important to know, like, because we get all these different perspectives, we now know more about Kyle too, where it's like, oh, he actually isn't just some random guy who like wouldn't have ever gotten chance to sail on a ship otherwise. Like he would have been a captain of his own ship. Yep. It just wouldn't have been a live ship. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting to read all these perspectives. And yeah. that's why it's taking, I think, a little bit more time, especially in the beginning here, to set up the characters of each person. Right. So probably a couple more. And these these chapters seem to be longer than the first trilogy as well. I think it's because they're so dense. There's like so yeah. much happening, especially sometimes you have up to three characters that have yeah. monologues or like that you're reading from the perspective of it just, there's a lot more going on each chapter than we had with Fitz because with Fitz, it was more like a couple months of his life. And this is like all in the span of one week in the first three chapters. <laughs> so like <laughs> it, it'll get easier as we go on because we won't have to do as much of like the right. background and yeah. breaking down and laying the groundwork just as right now a lot. I think that happens at the beginning of every book, but this is a new trilogy, so... With new characters, yeah. Definitely. Right, well, thank you so much for uh, writing in. Yeah, we always love hearing from you guys. Can't wait to see what you think of next week. 